Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In part three of his On the Basis of Morality, Arthur Schopenhauer is going to unfold for us a ethics of compassion as being the real criterion of moral value or moral worth, what it is that makes things morally good. And he's going to talk about this at considerable length, beginning in chapter 15 and then going on through chapter 16 and then unpacking it in terms of its two main divisions and actually going on later on to talk about a metaphysics of compassion. But here we want to get down, well, how does he derive this as the the sole criteria and what does he actually mean by this? So there's a lot to say because there's a lot going on here. He brings up the criterion of actions of moral worth, actions that can be said to have moral value. An action here is handlung. So it could be a single act. It could be a course of action. It could be a policy. It could be all sorts of things, but something is being done or not done. And then we're trying to figure out what makes it good. And for Schopenhauer, he says that part of this is going to be the lack, the absence, the not having an egoistic motivation. So this actually rules out quite a lot. There are a number of actions that we might view on the surface as good, but they're being done from an egoistic motivation. And he says, I'm not going to avail myself of the clandestine trick of shifting the matter onto the reader's conscience. You know, I'm not going to play around with that. We're going to actually like strip these things away. Way. There are people of true integrity and they are not being motivated in egoistic ways. And he says that we have the exclusion of that class of motives whereby all human actions are otherwise prompted, namely those of self-interest in the widest sense of the term. And then he says, okay, we also have to make a distinction here. So malice and you know all the things that fall under it, envy, cruelty, Well, those are actually not self-interested. Those are aimed at hurting another for the sake of that hurt, not to make yourself feel good, but just to hurt them. It might include elements of joy like schadenfreude, the malicious joy in another's suffering does, but we need to exclude those that are that are oriented by malice. And so he says, it's obvious that here such actions cannot be meant because they're the very opposite of those we're considering. And then he says, I've got some other stuff for you. Anybody who insists on the strictness of the definition may expressly exclude those actions. Why? Because their essential characteristic is that they aim at the suffering of others to produce suffering, right? Moreover, actions of moral worth have a characteristic that is quite internal, therefore not so evident. They leave behind a certain self-satisfaction called the approbation of conscience in the same way the opposite actions of unjustice and uncharitableness, still more those of malice and cruelty, are affected by an inner self-censure. 
Not everybody necessarily feels those. But then he says, finally, there's the secondary and accidental external characteristic that acts of the first kind, acts that are not self-interested and are not malicious, call forth the approbation and respect of impartial witnesses, whereas the second produced the opposite effect. So we've got now the three big motives. We're excluding egoistic motives. We're excluding malicious motives. And then he says, hey, do you want a proof for this sort of thing, I'll give you something like that. And he talks about a number of different hypotheses, axioms that we, we can look at. And I'm gonna run through these. So no action can take place without a sufficient motive. Axiom number one, an action cannot fail to take place when there's present a motive that's sufficient for the character of the doer, unless a stronger counter motive renders inevitable its non-performance. So we've got some philosophy of action going on there. What moves the will, what motivates, is simply weal and woe in general, right? So every motive has a reference to weal and woe, somebody being benefited, somebody being harmed, you could say. Fourth, consequently, every action refers to and has its, as its ultimate object a being susceptible to weal and woe. Fifth, that being is either the doer himself or another. The other would take a passive part in the action, right? And then sixth, every action which has its ultimate object, the weal and woe of the doer, is egoistic. So that's going to allow us to exclude that. Seven, all that is said here about actions applies equally to the non-performance of such actions for which motive and counter-motive exist. Eight, as a result of the discussion given in the previous section, egoism and the moral worth of an action absolutely exclude each other. If an action has as its motive an egoistic aim, it cannot have moral worth. So what we've got here is a bunch of useful distinctions, a bunch of clarifications. What can we say about this? If it is to have moral worth, its motive cannot be an egoistic aim, direct or indirect, uh, near or remote. And then finally, in consequence of the elimination in five of so-called duties to ourselves, the moral significance of an action can lie only in its reference to others. Only in respect to these can it have moral worth or worthlessness and accordingly be an action of justice or philanthropy as well as the reverse of them. And then he says, from these premises, the following is evident. The weal and woe, which must as its ultimate object underlie everything done or left undone, are those either of the doer himself or someone else who plays a passive part in the action. What does this give us? If we're focusing on the weal and woe of the other person and not on ourselves, well, then we've got something that is compassion. And that is going to be the only possible moral incentive, according to Schopenhauer. Well, this is a very strong claim. He also very helpfully runs through a bunch of clarifications about what, what is egoistic. So, you know, actions that are done for our own profit and advantage, these are no-brainers, right? I mean, we might have some ideologies that, that, that's like, you got to look out for number one, or everybody has to take care of themselves, or something like that. It's egoistic. It, it, you're not transforming it into a morally virtuous action by claiming that greed is good or, you know, you should be self-centered like everybody else or anything like that, right? Now, actions aimed at a remote result, what's good for me down the line, those are also egoistic. And so there's no moral worth to them. That doesn't mean that they're bad, right? They're not necessarily cruel or vicious, but they're, they're not fundamentally moral. Then we get into some really interesting ones. 
What about our good name, our reputation? You know, the things that are important for us. He says, it's no different when we have in view our honor, our reputation in the eyes of others, the esteem of anyone, the sympathy of onlookers, and so on. So that's kind of interesting. The esteem, reputation, sympathy of others, right? It's also no different when we're obedient to authority, which you know, Schopenhauer was willing to say, yeah, a lot of times we probably should be obedient to authority. But why? What's the motivation? If it's for fear of suffering consequences, fear of suffering woe, or wheel being negatively impacted, then that's egoistic. You know, we obey the king, we obey the God that we conceive of because we're worried about secular or religious sanctions of some sort. He talks about some absolute command that comes from an admittedly unknown but obviously superior authority. What else? He talks about our own pride. It is egoism, he says, that prompts us when we endeavor to assert by something done or left undone on our own high opinion of ourselves and our own worth and dignity, an opinion we should otherwise have to give up and therefore see our pride humbled. Now that seems to be a good thing, doesn't it? Still egoistic. And even, he brings up Christian Wolff, who nobody reads anymore except for a few specialists, but it was you know, very popular back then. And he talks about, in accordance with Wolff's principles, it's egoism when we try by an action to work out our own perfection. And by this, he means like the full development of all of our faculties and capacities are steering ourselves towards you know, goodness in that respect. Still egoistic because focused on the self. Even things that seem to be quite good are not morally good from this perspective. So what's compassion like? He tells us, if my action is to be done simply and solely for the sake of another, then his weal and woe must be directly my motive, just as my weal and woe are the case in all other actions. And, he's, and so he says, you know, this narrows the expression of our problem. We're going to figure this out. How is it possible for another's weal and woe to move my will directly? How is it possible for another's weal and woe to become directly my motive? And to such a degree that I more or less subordinate to them my own weal and woe, normally the source of my motives. And then he says, there's only one way, the other person becoming the ultimate object of my will in the same way that I myself otherwise am through my directly desiring his will and not his woe, just as immediately as I ordinarily do only my own. This is difficult to do. This is difficult to sustain. Schopenhauer is not saying that this happens all that frequently, but it does happen. And what is going on there, we engage in, as he says, a kind of identification with the other. And now we have to be kind of careful about this. He says, this requires that I am in some way identified with him. In other words, that this entire difference between me and everyone else, which is the very basis of my egoism, is eliminated. And then there's a very important clause there, to a certain extent, at least. He's not saying, suddenly you open up to the universe and you're available to everybody and you know, you're know you just compassion all the time. No, no, it's, it's a little bit getting away from the egoism that normally motivates you. And he says, I don't exist in the other person's skin. So how can I actually carry out this identification 
And he says, the knowledge that I have of this person, the representation of them in my head, because of this, I can identify myself with them to such an extent that my deed declares that difference abolished. And he says, this is not something that is in imagined or invented. It is perfectly real and indeed by no means infrequent. It is the everyday phenomenon of compassion, of mitleid, of the immediate participation, independent of all ulterior considerations, primarily in the suffering of another and thus in the prevention or elimination of it for all satisfaction and all well-being and happiness consist in this. And so this is something that Schopenhauer thinks that at least most of us, we all have the potential for this. Some of us experience this from time to time in our own actions. You know, you see the drowning kitten and you go over and pluck it out of the river and comfort it or something like that. Were you trying to, were you doing that because you were like, well, I need a kitten for a stage prop. Oh, there's a, a kitten right there. That would be egoistic. Just the direct, I reach out, I do something is compassion. And this identification, like you said, happens through representation, Vorstellung, right? A little bit later, he's going to say something very important. He's trying to avoid an error. And he talks about this Cassina and his analytic essay on compassion. His view is that compassion arises from an instantaneous deception of the imagination. We put ourselves in the position of the sufferer and have the idea we are suffering his pains in our person. Schopenhauer says, that's not what identification is. I'm not feeling that other person's pain in me. I am bothered by the fact that they are pain. He says, we remain clearly conscious that he is the sufferer, not we. It's precisely in his person, not in ours, that we feel the suffering to our grief and sorrow. We suffer with him and hence in him. We feel his pain as his. We do not imagine it as ours. If you're imagining that it's yours, he doesn't go ahead and say this, but if you're just imagining that it's yours, that's still egoistic, right? <laughs> because you only care about the other person because you've got this weird emotional contagion going on. Real compassion lowers a kind of boundary, but also recognizes that there is a differentiation. There is a boundary between ourselves and those, the other people. He also tells us something very important, that compassion is less focused and less directly focused on the well-being of the other and in promoting that well-being and more in alleviating their suffering. So it's, it is about the weal and the woe of the other, but you could say that it's more about the woe and how we help them out of that. He says that the reason for this is that pain, suffering that includes all want, privation, need, in fact, every wish and desire is that which is positive and directly felt and experienced. On the other hand, the nature of satisfaction, enjoyment, and happiness consists solely in the removal of a privation, the stilling of a pain. And so these have a negative effect. So we're going to be more oriented by making other people less unhappy than we are going to be by making them more happy. The last thing that he says, which leads us into the next sections, is that 
what this is going to take the form of are two very broad, overarching, we can call them virtues, Tugend in German. And these are justice or, you know, literally rightness, doing right by other people. And then loving kindness, which we could also translate as benevolence or as philanthropy. And these two are going to be, as he says, tied in with these two important clauses. Injure no one, on the contrary, help everyone as much as as you can. And these are going to be, at least in some respects, motivated by something of genuine moral worth, namely compassion. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.